1: You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post.
0: Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast from the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong with me, Finbar Birmingham. This is your weekly dose of analysis on China's economy, its foreign affairs and its geopolitical ties with the rest of the world. We're going to hit all those notes today as John Carter, our political economy editor, frisks the latest economic data for signs of a slowing recovery. Last week, we talked about how well the Chinese economy had done last year, at least in relative terms, but this week, new coronavirus outbreaks put that recovery in question. Joining John will be William Jung from our China desk to dissect the first major public speech of the year by China's top diplomat, Yang Jiechi. A bit of an olive branch, perhaps some wishful thinking, but come for the analysis, stay for the forensic elucidation of China's political hierarchy. Finally, I'll have a chat with our senior Asia correspondent, Bhavan Jai Pragas, about the week's major news in the region, the Myanmar coup. Where does China stand on this and how might it affect the regional geopolitical dynamic? Bavan is the man on this, so we're delighted to have him on the show. Plenty to get through, let's get moving. joined on this Thursday evening to discuss the week's events by John Carter from our political economy desk and William Jung our colleague from the China desk thanks for joining us guys we'll start off with the economy last week we discussed at length how China was the only major economy or is expected at least to be the only major economy to have grown in 2020 this week we've seen that things may not be going quite as swimmingly as expected. New coronavirus outbreaks across the country have led to some fears that the Chinese economy is facing headwinds, the same sorts of headwinds maybe that other countries are also facing. John Carter, I'll bring you in on this point first. Um, how serious are these outbreaks and what, how much of a threat do they pose to Chinese economic recovery?
2: Well, the outbreaks in northern China in Hebei Province, around Beijing and in Beijing itself uh, and in other northern provinces and the Rust Belt, are the biggest outbreak since March 2020, which is the height of the original coronavirus outbreak. So this is very serious. And what the Chinese government has done is both they've locked down a number of cities in these provinces in northern China, and also advised uh, migrant workers not to travel home for Chinese New Year. Now, Chinese New Year is... Um, is when hundreds of millions, literally, of there's 250 million migrant workers in China in Chinese New Year's is a one time each year that they travel to their hometowns. And so there is tremendous spending on travel, on gifts for the family, on family feasts, and it is a major celebration time. And so not being able to travel home means there or likely means there'll be less spending in this way. So this is going to be depressing for the economy. The data we saw this week, the purchasing managers indexes from first the uh, official indexes, which are from the Chinese government, which are mostly uh, watching uh, large firms, and then from Caixin, which are mostly watching private sector smaller firms, both fell sharply Uh, particularly the service sector, which would be most affected by a loss in spending. This means catering, restaurants, entertainment venues, all of those things were very depressed. And it is uh, many economists have revised down their first quarter growth forecasts. And one hears a lot about growth plateauing and perhaps even peaking and trending downward in the months and, and the quarters ahead. We don't know about that. Uh, it's too soon to say, but what we do know is that the sentiment in both the manufacturing and the service sector in January was weaker, weaker for the second month in a row after a very strong fourth quarter. So where is the Chinese economy going? It's too soon to say. Chinese government has been very um, efficient in clamping down on these areas to contain the virus, and virus outbreak numbers are down this week. Uh, And that's good. But as I say, they've already told people not to go home uh, for Chinese New Year. And this is going to likely depress spending. And this will put downward pressure on first quarter growth.
0: Yeah. And John, I wanted to ask you what is going on with Chinese policy on the economy. Um, You know, the growth last year was largely inspired by or largely stimulated by um, big spending on infrastructure. Uh, by debt at the local government and at a household level, uh, we didn't really see that consumption rebound and it doesn't look like it's going to happen now, given what you've just told us about the these new outbreaks and the clampdown on travel over the Lunar New Year holiday. Um, so, I mean, what's been going on with the Central Bank, with policymakers in Beijing? Are they doing more to try and uh, stimulate the economy economy again?
2: Uh, no, they're not doing more. Uh, the, the, the debate in Beijing is on whether to start to withdraw this stimulus uh, because, in particular, the central bank is worried about excess liquidity leading to asset bubbles, leading to risks to not only China's financial system but the global financial system. I mean, and this is in sharp contrast to what Western countries are doing. The U.S. Uh, the UK, uh, the European Union, and Japan are all increasing or continuing to stimulate their economies, uh, both in terms of fiscal policy, that is government spending, and in terms of monetary policy, which is the central bank adding extra liquidity to the financial system. So what the People's Bank of China, the Chinese Central Bank, wants is to reduce the amount of liquidity in the Chinese financial system in order to reduce the risks of asset bubbles. And in the last two weeks, it has been withdrawing. Uh, liquidity, uh, surprisingly, because normally ahead of Chinese New Year, you add liquidity because of the increased demand for cash because of all this presumed consumer spending. Now, with people not returning home or many people not returning home this Chinese New Year, uh, there may be a smaller demand. But what people in the market are taking is that this is a warning from the central bank that we're starting to tighten up. We are not going to give you as much money to work with as before because we're afraid it will go into speculative investments in the stock market, in the bond market, in the property market. And so we're going to start to tighten up even though it's just before Chinese New Year. In terms of fiscal policy, that is government spending, we won't know until the two sessions, the National People's Congress, in uh, the first week of march when we'll know what the uh, uh, projected budget deficit is for this year as well as how much the government will allow local governments to borrow to fund infrastructure projects the presumption is that both of those things will be lower so there'll be less money into the economy now as we discussed a minute ago the latest data suggests that the economy is is hitting a, a bad spot and so it may not be a good time to start to withdraw stimulus. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. so we will have to wait and see what actually the uh, the government does.
0: Yeah. I I mean, it's a... Wow, I mean, it's it's such a challenge for every government and it shows, I mean, everybody was talking about how the government in China had these things under control and I guess what we've seen over recent weeks is that it's, I mean, it just shows how impossible it is to contain this uh, 100%. Um, William, I wanted to bring you in and and talk a little bit about what's been happening on the foreign policy front this week. Uh, We saw China's top diplomat, Yang Jiechi, address um, the national committee on u.s china relations in which he spoke about a potential reset in uh in, in in the superpower rivalry under the new biden administration william i know you were watching this closely what were your main takeaways from the speech by young at this event
1: thanks Fingba. first of all i think many people are a little bit confused with uh, uh young standing in china because uh, in China's party state uh, structure. It's actually very confusing who is he and why we always call him the top diplomat. In China's uh, party state system, the party is always uh, having a higher hierarchy of the government. So for Yang, he is the director of the Central foreign affairs commission which was established and now directly headed by president xi jinping himself about to the main function of it is to manage the party's overall external uh, relationship uh, policies and that will transmit to the government side which uh, minister wang yi would be uh, would be the key representative from the government side so Given all this uh, complicated China politics structure, how I personally see it, see him is a spokesperson of the CCP on diplomatic affairs. So that's that is how we can look at it from that point of view. China's mm-hmm. ruling party's key person. Yeah. He he helped President Xi Jinping manage the diplomat, uh, Diplomacy Front, and he, on a uh, Politburo ranking, he, he's ranked higher than uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi. So overall, when Yang speaks, he speaks on behalf of China's ruling party. Now we know who Yang is, and his speech basically is a party's standing. That's why it's not surprising that his comments is largely echoed what uh, Ambassador Cui Kai has been saying and uh, Vice Foreign Minister Le Yucheng have been talking about Sino-US relationship, how it want to go. But interestingly, this is the first time China gives a very detailed account of what it expects where the collaboration could happen and where uh, it want U.S. to manage the differences. And uh, interestingly, he lists out four broad aspects of it. First thing first, he told uh, the U.S. new administration to, to recognize or treat China correctly, take a correct view of China, and uh, don't, do not take us as a major competitor or major rival second thing he requested is to resume the normal exchange between the two countries there he actually said about uh, what has been happening for past few years and there have been disruption of on the uh, people's exchange the intellectuals the schools media uh even in the companies and he he was saying that let's both sides remove all these barriers and enhance the exchanges. Thirdly, that's the part where all the media was, was uh, writing about was, now let's manage our differences. There he reiterated the five nevers. Never interfere with the uh, US internal affairs, especially the election, right? uh, which has always been a talking point. And it say it never want to export its development model to outside and uh, never, engaged, never want to engage in ideological confrontation. Never sought to challenge or replace the U.S. and uh, it has no intention to divide its sphere of influences. But it also laid out the usual bottom lines for China please don't touch these. That would be the th- upholding of three Sino-US joint communicate and uh, abide to one China policy. That's especially with regard to Taiwan issue. And uh, it also lists out that please stop interfering Hong Kong, Tibet, and Xinjiang. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what he raised specifically. But interestingly, this time he was very detailed in Uh, economic issues and uh, other uh, areas that China and U.S. can work together. Where he did go into that uh, China will, in economic and trade front, he said we will continue to welcome American company to invest in China and both sides should provide a fair and open uh, environment.
0: So as I mean, it's uh, very hopeful, I suppose, uh, on the part of Yang, William, uh, and John, maybe I can ask you both to, to comment briefly on this how I mean, this sounds like a bit of a hail mary. How how realistic is it for a reset in U.S. China ties at this point? Is this mainly uh, Yang being optimistic, or do you think there's any realism at all? This might actually happen.
2: It's very early days of the Biden administration. Let's remember that Biden hasn't even been president for a month yet. He, he has he's setting down a lot of markers in the initial rhetoric from his senior advisors is, is very hawkish against China, but this may be in part uh, playing to the domestic audience, setting down a, a, a standard against which cooperation can be layered on top, potentially. I mean, there's areas where many people think there's um, potential for cooperation. Environmental issues in particular, remember back in 2014, during the Obama administration, China and the United States came up with an agreement on a greenhouse gas reductions, which paved the way for the Paris climate record. With, without that agreement between the two world's two largest emitters, there might not have been a Paris climate accord. Um, so potentially there is area for cooperation there also. Cooperation on the coronavirus, perhaps a bit more controversial, but still, um, it is a global problem. It affects everyone. There are no exceptions. The virus doesn't take sides. Um, so, uh, can this be layered on a difficult relationship, a challenging relationship, and it remains to be seen. It's too soon to say. And I think what um, Yang was saying is, okay, these are our bottom lines. This is our position. Now tell us what you think. How, where are you going to reach out to us? And I would note for you that today or last night, the U.S. repeated its support for the China One China policy. Uh, which is one of the um, red lines that uh, Yang made in his speech. So we are starting to feel our way towards an understanding of the new administration in the United States and the existing regime in China.
0: We'll hear more about that in future. Uh, but for now, John Carter, William Jung, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this week. Dramatic events this week in Myanmar, where the country's powerful military has deposed of an elected government and declared a one-year state of emergency. Huge news all around the world, and we've been reporting very heavily on this at the South China Morning Post. Leading our coverage has been Bhavan Jepragas, who's Senior Asia Correspondent at The Post and who is currently writing this week's cover story for the This Week is Asia Supplement for the Weekend. Bhavan, a lot of the coverage has been devoted around the world to what the reaction to this coup might be in the US, in the European Union. But I think it's worth remembering that China shares a 2,129 kilometre border with Myanmar and it is by far the biggest trading partner. 33% of all Myanmar's trade is with China. Wondering with that in mind, what is China's stance as the rest of the world, um, you know, has massive outcry to the coup in Myanmar? Honestly, I think there's been very little to pass
3: in terms of what uh, Beijing is thinking about the coup. You had the immediate reaction from the foreign ministry spokesman Wang Wenbin saying on Monday that, you know, Myanmar is a friendly neighbour. But really, no outright condemnation or uh, cheering, for that matter, right? So I, I think what we what we see from Beijing right now is kind of a, a cautious approach. It, it, I think most important is that they do not want to be seen as being uh, behind the coup or having been told ahead of time that the power would be seized. Uh, so I, I think the the signals from Beijing have indicated this, but nothing else beyond. Uh, calling for restraint and, and for dialogue.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, sort of uh, uh, in a way, uh, the, the way China likes to portray itself as not interfering in the foreign, foreign policies of other nations and um, they don't tend to go large with big public statements like that. Um, uh, You know, Myanmar, obviously, no stranger to economic hardship as a result of domestic political situation. You know, it was starved from technology and investment due to Western sanctions for decades. Now, what are we expecting from the u s. and the EU in response to this bavana? Are they going to try and sort of go back to the way things were before Myanmar started opening up, as they say a few years ago?
3: So one of the things that we have seen in the last few days is the fact that uh, the State Department has formally declared that the actions over the weekend um, and on Monday uh, constituted a coup. So that gives uh, the U.S. government, you know, uh, it begins the process to review foreign aid that the Americans uh, have been giving to Myanmar over the years. In 2019, that number stood at, you know, somewhere close to 200 million U.S. dollars. So that will be under review. And experts also see that it it's, it paves the way for kind of an exploratory process on whether sanctions should be uh, metered out. And on this, there's a, a spectrum of views. Some people say, you know, this is not the Myanmar of a decade ago. So even if you were to impose fresh, immediate sanctions, the pain might be quite minimal because there are other players there. China is there, not just China, but Japan. And Southeast Asian countries, uh, Singapore is the biggest uh, source of FDI to Myanmar. These players are, you know, going to, you know, impose sanctions. It, there's yeah, there's
0: no decision of that at all. And, and I wanted to ask you about that, Pavan You know, Japan was uh, involved in Myanmar all the way through the sanctioned period of the past. But, but what I wanted to focus on was the the, the response from ASEAN neighbours. Um, you know, what what has been the response out of Singapore, Malaysia, and other partners in the in the block? You know, have they been tough talking, or are they also sort of um taking um you know a bit of a hands off approach to this?
3: So we have had a, a, a series of, of uh, reactions. Uh, firstly, the Brunei, which is the current chair of this 10 nations, blocked the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. It released a statement really basically reminding Myanmar and you know basically all member states of, of its, the founding principles of, of rule of law and good governance. But bas- it, there was no, no chiding, no condemnation, nothing of that sort basically calling for restraint, calling for dialogue. And most of the individual governments did the same. For example, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia and the Philippines all issued statements expressing concern or deep concern or or, or grave concern and calling for all sides to, to talk to each other. On the other end of the spectrum, there was Cambodia and Thailand which basically said that the coup was an internal matter and they had nothing else to add to that. Yeah, so this is a region where you have, uh, frankly, uh, you know, thin-pot dictators who are in charge in places mm-hmm. uh, like 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 Cambodia. So they they are well aware that they, they have no moral authority to tell other member states
0: uh, <laughs> how, to, how to conduct. Yes, them. indeed. And, uh, you know, the last time you came on, Bhavan, we we talked about perhaps ASEAN as a, a battleground for US-China influence. Um you know, is this the sort of thing that you might expect some behind the scenes maneuvering and, uh, you know, each side to maybe try and exert more influence on how Myanmar, uh, the track that it goes down, and I know obviously China has been muted and what it's saying in public, but I mean, is this the sort of flashpoint you can see maybe leading to a spike in that rivalry?
3: I don't think immediately we will see Myanmar, uh, you know, overnight becoming the, the kind of uh, latest battleground. China from what the experts are saying, is treading cautiously because they they also have an eye on stability in Myanmar, right? And they also have an eye on making sure that that whoever is in charge, you know, are are competent economic custodians because they have got considerable investments there, Chinese-linked, state-backed firms and so on. And I think that's the number one priority, right? To see what's the plan uh, for the next year, the the, the military says uh, the emergency will last a year. So, this coup is being held in the middle of a the pandemic and a unprecedented re- recession, so China and other source in investor nations will be looking to firstly policy continuity and hoping that there isn't too much abrupt change
0: yeah we also discussed previously and a lot of people have been looking out for this um what w- how will America re-engage with with ASEAN uh, under Joe Biden? Uh, it's now about well it's about two two and a half weeks since the inauguration is this an early is this been seen as an early test for um, how Biden does sort of re-engage uh, Bavan and, and how, how do people expect that to unfold?
3: I think that there's a strong sense of of realism about what the Biden administration will do in Southeast Asia. It's very clear that the primary kind of uh, theatres of American foreign policy is uh, East Asia. So when it comes to China, it's about engaging Japan and South Korea. Of course, there's the Middle East, there's Russia. The administration did uh, very quickly make its displeasure known. Right after the coup, you had Anthony Blinken issue a statement quite rapidly in the morning, uh, Asian hours on Monday, condemning the act. And then the the White House press secretary released a, a separate statement, and then President Biden issued a, a very strong statement. At the same time, you know, the experts I've been speaking to are are hoping that that all these uh, signals from the US does not mean that they are they have already made up their minds. About fresh sanctions, uh, and, and the experts are very much, I, and I, I, I say, I think there is a consensus among the Southeast Asian observers that you know there is hope that uh, Washington does not jump the gun here and think carefully about imposing fresh sanctions because, uh, firstly, the the thinking is that it might you will have very marginal effect. You you will diminish what uh, limited influence the U.S. has in Myanmar and, and that does not uh, advance American interest at all. Mm, so, yeah. yeah. So I think the, the important thing that the experts are saying is that the keeping chance for dialogue open could be key to uh, bringing the temperature down.
0: Well, let's hope the temperature doesn't soar too high. But, Bavan, that's been an excellent thumbnail guide to what's happened in, in Myanmar this week. We know that you're on top of it. So, uh, you can follow Bavan on Twitter, but make sure you read his stories on scmp.com and pick up a paper if you're in Hong Kong this weekend. Bavan, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the China Geopolitics Podcast with me, Finbar Birmingham at the South China Morning Post. Please take a moment to like, share and subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening. Keep up to date with all the news on scmp.com and do pick up a copy of the post if you're in Hong Kong this weekend to read Bavan's cover story for This Week in Asia. It's also going to be on our website. We are on the cusp of the Chinese New Year holiday. It's happening next week. So we're going to take two weeks off and we'll be back in the year of the ox. Until then, gong He fa Choi, xin yang la, and we'll see you on the other side.
1: For more podcasts from the South China Morning Post, head to scmp.com, where you can hear more about technology, trade, culture, and society.